This is Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. My guest today is the esteemed cognitive scientist Yosha Bach. Yosha earned his PhD in cognitive science from the University of Osnabrück, Germany, and has built computational models of motivated decision-making, perception, categorization, and concept formation. He's currently the vice president of research at the AI Foundation and has held research positions in cognitive artificial intelligence at MIT and evolutionary dynamics at Harvard. Yosha's work explores the workings of the human mind, intelligence, consciousness, life on Earth, and possibly simulated fabric of our cosmos. He has been called the leading philosopher of AI today. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. Hello, Yosha. Thanks for coming. Hello, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Guys, it's uh, it's a great excuse to get to speak to you again. Uh, I guess the last time I saw you was in California. You had just moved out. Uh, how is life going living in California as opposed to the East Coast? Uh, I love California. It's eternal spring and um, it has great outdoors. And uh, before COVID, it was also an amazing place to meet people. Yeah, what do you think about it intellectually compared to let's let's say you know Boston, not compared to Germany? But I mean, is there is the discourse different? Definitely, it's uh, a place that is, in some sense, slightly less academic than Boston, and that's sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But uh, most importantly, it's different. And I thought that after a few years in Boston, um, I would want to spend a few years in this climate before going back to civilization. Um, at the moment, it seems that uh, the U.S. is not dealing well with COVID and uh, it's, it has major coordination problems. And I don't really doubt that the U.S. is going to reinvent itself, but uh, it might take some time, like a generation or so. And I do have children and I wonder if uh, it's responsible to let my uh, kids grow up in a country that is uh, not able to... Uh, deal with um, finding a joint purpose, with uh, giving people decent health insurance, with uh, taking care of the future. This uh, U.S. does not plan ahead for the future. And that's a very weird and terrifying situation. California is an amazing country. It has a similar um, economic productivity as the whole of Germany while having only half as many people. It's 20% larger. This in incredible wealth and natural resources and uh, in intellectual capital and so on. And at the same time, most people are so poor, right? The standard of living, the, all these uh, Tyvek boxes that people have to live in. Yeah. It, I came to California and I wondered uh, what was so weird about it. And at, at some point I realized, oh my God, they have the same light and vegetation uh, and countryside as Italy, but shit architecture. <laughs> But the strange thing is that we were so critical, by the way, of Italy early on, you know, as a country uh, uh, handling COVID. And then we learned nothing anyway. Um, is and, and yet they get to go back out, you know, and they're, they're smart about it. It's crazy. Yes, it's a postmodernist country in a way. And I wonder if this is uh, going to happen to every modernist country that it turns postmodernist. That is, as soon as the existential risks are gone which happened in the U.S. after the 1950s and definitely after the end of the Cold War, 
um, you uh, let go. Yeah, your government, the same thing happens in organizations like uh, companies and so on, uh, your management is going uh, to no longer optimize for survival of this uh, institution or organization or country, but it's uh, going to optimize for performance to satisfy the critical audiences that uh, let you get in power and stay in power. And it's almost inevitable that this happens. And um, once this happens, policies become more or less populist or uh, they are in the direct, uh, direct interest of stakeholders that more or less capture the regulators. And this seems to have happened in the US. There are many competent people on all levels of the hierarchies. There's no question about it. But the people that ultimately make the decisions are not incentivized to make the right ones. Right. And this doesn't seem like something that is political in the way that one administration goes and another one comes. It's it's a, a true institutional issue um, and incentives issue that you can see probably in large tech as well. Yes. If you zoom out, it doesn't seem to be the problem of individuals. I don't think it's Trump's fault that he got elected. There is a pre-electoral process that is choosing candidates. And it seems that both parties... Um, don't have internal oversight that makes sure that uh, the candidates that they can up with are responsible choices for, uh, with respect to the U.S. having a future in which our children and the children of our children will have a good life and where everything is sustainable. I, you know, I, how, how young were you when you started to think about these more organizational or structural um situations of when things were working or not, because, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You, you know, you grew up in Weimar, right. Mm -hmm. Which by the way, I have to say is I take a sort of by, you know, every two years I take a pilgrimage to Weimar. Um, because I'm a, um, I, I sort of want to live in the shadows of Goethe every once in a while. I take pilgrimages in other places as well to try to realize what human potential was at one time. I'm so interested by, you know, the time that you grew up there, you know, what was the attachment to history, but also to how that formed these larger ideas of what was working, what, what was a working society or not a working society? In some sense, I always thought about these issues, but for the most part of my life, I was severely confused about them. I grew up in communist Eastern Germany and uh, Eastern Germany had, uh, in some sense, a very moralist perspective on how the world should be working. And if uh, things were not working according to plan, you would need to change the way people looked at things. You would need to change their uh, motives, intentions. And uh, so Eastern Germany was not truly looking at the incentives that people were operating under. Instead, it was confusing people by uh, dominating the public opinion with the best possible slogans. And ultimately, our society failed because we were not able to set economic incentives correctly. When I was 16, I couldn't see that. I, even when the wall came down, I was um, not just a liberal. I was a leftist in the sense that I wanted to have a working socialism. True socialism had never been tried. And uh, I, I was felt almost betrayed by the working class, which elected to be uh, exploited by the bourgeoisie again. And I thought this was because... Uh, the media was manipulating people during the process of reunification to... Uh, uh, agreed with these measures. What I didn't realize that Western Germany had been the control group and uh, people could see this. And the conditions in Western Germany had been objectively better for the working class. Right? Western Germany was an extremely 
unequal society compared to Eastern Germany. There were not large income differences between the people that administered the factories and the people that um, worked the machines. But because nobody had any skin in the game, uh, there was no incentive for innovation. And as a result, uh, we had always uh, a shortage of labor. It was really not just uh, that our country was an employment program. It was so inefficiently organized that we couldn't get things done. And our productivity did not uh, raise dramatically over uh, what, uh, what we had in the late 1950s. And eventually that, this got us and uh, killed our economy. Yeah, that's so interesting. You, you, if you contrast, you know, this idea of, you know, these concerns of income inequality with, you know, you know, equity or equality, but just failure, (laughs) you know, it's, it's an interesting thing for, I, I, do you think though that we are, if you think about Germany, do you think that we're more, what are the historical comparisons? Is it, is it communist um, Germany or is it, is it before, is there, or, or, or right now both countries in a sort of state of, of confusion or of disrepair? Um, Germany is a vassal country to the U.S. It has become one after World War II. And I think that was the intention of the U.S. intervention. It was mostly the, the goal was uh, to make sure that Stalin's uh, domain does not end at the Atlantic, but that there is uh, a profound um, Western influence that basically a rationalist liberal democracy exists uh, in Europe and maintains itself. And the U.S. had a long-term vision about this uh, that was already manifest when they entered the war um, by uh, via Japan. And uh, they managed to uh, change the course of history. And in the way they did this was that they rebuilt Europe in, in such a way that they didn't destroy Germany. Um, and uh, despite Germany having been uh, the reason for World War II and uh responsible for unspeakable atrocities. But they uh, rebuilt Germany into a very prosperous, uh, a very liberal country. They indoctrinated Germany with humanism that made it impossible to understand what happened during fascism in a way that was quite successful. Uh, it also meant that uh, Germany in many ways lost its edge because uh, there was no more deep critical thinking after World War II. Hitler had burned most of the intellectual life that has survived um, the first revolution before that. And um, the most edgy thing that Western Germany had after World War II was Habermas. And uh, Eastern Germany had only this vulgar dialectic materialism that was not able to make sense of reality at all except through the uh, lens of an ideology. So uh, Eastern Germany didn't have good philosophy and Western Germany has poor philosophy. But it's, I think it's waking up. Still, the incentives are very different. Germany is not a world power anymore and will never be one again, I think, and doesn't think at the scale. And it did rely on the U.S. Uh, being its um, uh, the power that uh, guaranteed uh, Germany's place in the world in some sense. And uh, since the U.S. is no longer able to serve that role, it means that Europe has to reconsider its options. And to me, it's an interesting question whether uh, Europe uh, will just have to sell itself out to the highest bidder. For instance, uh, we are now doing a similar thing as the U.S. We are selling key industries to China. And this uh, makes us dependent in a way that is not necessarily in the interest of the free world. Is it clear to you, um, though, that that you you see the obvious criticism and deep concern for what's happening in the country where we're both raising our children? 
Um, but yeah, do, do you I mean, do you see this as getting to be this binary place again of a, chi- a a world that's China dominant or or U.S. dominant? And is that is that inherently one worse or better at this point? No, I'm not sure if this is the right lens at all. I think that China is probably best understood not as a communist country or as a fascist country, but as a modernist country. China has in its form today more in common with the U.S. in the 1950s than the U.S. has to do with U.S. in the 1950s. And uh, the question is, how long does modernism last? Uh, Is it possible to perpetuate it indefinitely? Or uh, is China going to industrialize itself and settle down and uh, turn into um, eventually a postmodernist country? Or has postmodernism run its course and uh, the Western countries are now faced with fresh existential issues and become modernist again. That's interesting. I'm, I, I want to go from this to digging into um, how we deal with, you know, one thing you, you talked about planning and the, you, the U.S. not doing a very good job at planning. And I'm trying to think about what is human capability of how far are we, not as Americans, but in general, how far are we able to think ahead and do planning? Can we plan beyond one's own life in any effective way? And uh, do you do you think that this is a, a, an evolutionary possibility for us? Even it has been the rule. We are a state-building species. We are meant to think ahead very far. And in previous civilizations, we could do this. So when uh, we built cathedrals in previous centuries, these were projects that were planned to last uh, many generations. And people acted on multi-generational plans back then to the point where they realized at this point we will need new wood for the roof and this is when we plant the oaks. And uh, they're going to take that and that many hundred years to mature until we can harvest them. And uh, we are not able to perform this kind of planning right now. We we don't start projects that last multiple generations. We cannot uh, uh, plan more than 30 years ahead even. And I don't think that's a law of nature. It has to do with our future changing faster than our models of the future change. And I think that's probably the reason why our elites lost the plot. Oh, interesting. So, do you, so if we do, you think that how much of a role did religion play in the ability to plan versus you know versus a more secular age where where we are thinking of, of our own mortality as being an end? I suspect that we often take a religion as something that is has organically grown and then has started to dominate the world. And I suspect that it's constructed. It's, uh, I don't think that we give the creators of religion and the people that uh, let religion dominate societies enough credit. Many of them acted on real plans. And I think it was a, a project that uh, Catholicism had when they saw the failing Roman Empire and decided to turn it into a cult. It's maybe not too dissimilar to social justice seeing the failing American Empire and trying to turn it into a cult. And uh, cults have drawbacks because they limit the uh, rationality of the individual, but they also um, bind individuals into a structure of meaning and coordinate their actions. And there's a certain brutality uh, that happens when you violate the uh, rational autonomy of individuals. It's very risky because it diminishes the productivity of a society and its ability to react to external threats because people are strongly incentivized to uh, believe in whatever the cult is telling them, even if it's factually untrue. And uh, religions change the incentives in such a way that you are forced to uh, join a particular kind of belief regardless of whether it's factually correct. 
just so you can read the benefits of cooperation and coordination. I think that uh, our relationship to uh, the greater whole, which we call God traditionally in religion, basically God is uh, the platonic form of the civilization seen as an agent, as a sentient being that is uh, emerging over the actions of the individuals. And religion is the tool that is used to coordinate the implementation of God, of this societal agent. This was, has been a remarkably successful project in the sense that it gave somewhat uh, stable structure to Europe for um, one and a half millennia almost. But um, for instance, the emergence of Protestantism was the result of uh, Catholicism not being able to serve the interests of the kings north of the Alps. Right? This was too remote. They had too little communication, too little coordination. At some point, the kings realized we need to have our own religion that needs to be subordinate to our secular power. And then Martin Luther was the right man in the right place. And uh, what he came up with was adopted. And the kings didn't see the importance of inquisition to make sure that your religious body stays homogenous and your gods don't splinter. So lots of Protestant cults popped up, many of which were eventually driven into the US, where they became uh, shorter game cults. Most of these evangelical religions are not Protestant in the sense as uh, European Protestants are but they are uh, more cultish organizations that uh, let um, individuals coordinate for the benefit of a clique of um, uh, special beings that uh, preach to, the, uh, to their audiences and so on. Of course, if these uh, organizations stay around for long, it's because they serve important roles with the people that are organized in them. It's not just violence that binds together the evangelical cults or, or mental violence. It gives, gives people genuine community. But uh, I think that um, religion is ultimately a tool in this traditional form that is not good for a knowledge society. It's not suitable for an industrial society. We need a modern form of thinking that allows us to believe in, uh, in the greater whole that we are working for, that uh, organizes sacredness, but it doesn't do this by violating rationality. All right. Well, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear some suggestions, but I, um, I, I look at your... As I as I talk to people for this or in general and talk about artificial intelligence, talk about, you know, reductionism um, there generally in AI, there are, you know, several different types of people that go into it. You to create a technology um, to or to understand the human brain as a kind of reverse engineering kind of a, a I, it, you went in a more theoretical approach to try to understand us. Is that right? To, I mean, is this. Is it, you were were you less interested in the technological possibilities than you were in the abilities for understanding the technology that's inside our head already? I'm uh, extremely interested in technology. I just uh, think that um, the I cannot make the biggest difference if I focus on how to add a small epsilon to uh, stochastic gradient descent. Mm-hmm. There are uh, much smarter people uh, than me working on this topic. And uh, ultimately, it's boring homework. We roughly know how these classes of algorithms work and why they work. At least uh, the theoretical thinkers among us do. And for me, it's much more interesting to understand the parts uh, that don't work yet, where we don't really know how to deploy the technology in such a way that it can produce things that our brain can produce. So for me, uh, what is the difference between... Uh, GPT-3 and uh, the human mind is more interesting than uh, uh, actually building GPT-3 myself. 
what is the biggest? What are some differences? So in GPT three, I mean, you know, I had I had Gary Marcus on who. It, it seems like it wouldn't matter if there were GPT, and he even said this, it doesn't matter if there is a GPT-6, it won't be any more interesting or better than GPT-2 was. Um, uh, first of all, do you think that's true? I'm not sure if uh, Gary is asking himself the right question. So uh, when I make a statement, I always have to ask myself, uh, what is the confidence that I should have based on the weight of the evidence and what would convince me that my theory is wrong. So it's uh, for me problematic to make an absolute statement in a realm that is so complicated that I cannot make tight proofs. And most of the arguments that Gary is making are uh, arguments that definitely have occurred to people like Jan de Kuhn or uh, Jeffrey Hinton. It's, uh, it's not that hard to come up with these objections. So uh, what is it that the... Uh, that these people are missing? Are they really missing something? The, the deeper question to me is, um, is there a limit in GPT-3 that cannot be overcome in a particular way? There are obviously things that GPT-3 is doing very, very differently from us. For instance, it doesn't do online learning. If GPT-3 comes up in any kind of context with a new solution to a problem, it's not going to incorporate this solution in its body of knowledge and use it for future inferences. It's going to forget everything that it's uh, doing after it has done it. And this precludes it from being truly situated because we live in an open world. We live in a world that gen continuously generates new facts that we cannot deduce from first principles. Right? There are go things going to happen in the US tomorrow that we have no way to inferring. And this means um, that GPT-3 is, after a short time, no longer living in the same world as us. And uh, it's very apparent, GPT-3's training ends in October 2019. It has never right. heard about COVID. It has never heard about George Floyd. It lived in the bygone era. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's an issue that would need to be addressed. Uh, there's uh, the question, could something like GPT-3 act on a world? And that's less obvious than most people think it is. Imagine you would build a robot, and this robot has a vision-to-text module that describes what it sees. And then uh, it has uh, a text-to-actuator uh, module that takes textual output and uh, translates it into motor actions. And um, then GPT-3 tells itself the story of a robot in the world that is being described to it uh, and performs actions on that world that is being described on it by describing these actions. And then uh, the actions are being performed and uh, the robot sees the outcome of these actions and feeds them back into GPT-3. Now let's add online learning to it. Right? That is really fascinating. Now what's the difference to a human being? Of course, uh, the language that GPT-3 is using is not optimal for the purpose. We don't think so much in language as we think in geometry. So we would want to train GPT-3 not first on language and uh, train it so hard that ultimately it discovers some of the geometric relationships between things in the world. But rather we want to do it the other way around. We want to train it first on uh, on the patterns that it can see and perceive and uh, create embeddings over those and then uh, discover language in the long tail in the same way as uh, mammals are doing it, right? But this is also not a uh, prime uh, functional objection against GPT-3 because it has shown that it can uh, make sense of images. So you can feed it uh, an image line by line, tell it this is basically text 
it is going to interpret these bytes of an image as something like a text uh, str uh, string. And then it, you give it a few uh, lines that contain cat ears, and it's going to give you the rest of the cat. And it's going to be different cat every time if it has seen enough in its training set. So we have a general embedding algorithm here. It's, it's very, very powerful. There is another limitation. The context of GPT-3 is very small. It's only looking at 2,048 tokens at a time. And uh, this, these tokens have to be adjacent. So in some yeah. sense, it has a working memory that only contains the things that it's currently looking at, which means basically two to three pages of text. It's good to forget everything beyond the current two to three pages of text, both in generation and in training. It never discovers a relationship that spans more than two pages. The reason that it's able to have long-ranging relationships is because its training data contained a lot of summaries of books, right? So it does not only contain low-level stuff, it uh, contains relationships on all levels of the hierarchy. So it figures out a lot of things based on that data because it's in there. But uh, it's very difficult to make GPT-3 coherent. And this is another issue. Can we come up with a loss function that is not optimizing for um, autocomplete? Basically, GPT-3 is very much an autocomplete generator, like in your phone. But that is uh, uh, producing something that is um, the minimum amount of model that you need to uh, produce the most accurate model of the universe that contains you. So instead of uh, looking at all the uh, texts that contain numerical calculations and then trying to figure out when humans uh, come up with text in which uh, there are numbers, what are uh, the uh, patterns that occur in these numbers in human-like fashions? This is what it does right now. So it's able to do arithmetic with uh, two or three digits with a degree of reliability. But uh, in, in principle, the resources that it shows at this uh, are... Uh, not used very well in this sense. It's able to make human-like uh, arithmetic like they happen in human texts, but it should be able with a fraction of the resources to deduce the underlying laws of arithmetic and the mathematics that are involved. And of course, there are deep learning systems which do just that. So you can train a deep network on doing mathematics with a suitable uh, training set, and it's going to outperform Stephen Wolfram's Mathematica. And... Uh, but it's not human-like, of course, so it's not going to produce typical human text. And so when we learn, when you and me learn something scientific or economical or whatever, we, uh, we read the textbook and don't try to reproduce the form of the textbook. We try to uh, reproduce the deepest ideas in it. This is what we go for first, and this is what GPT-3 goes for last. Right. I mean, how, how much do we relate that to which part of the human brain we consider complex and whether that actually maps to the truth. You know, I, I'm, I always, I always argue with people about the complexity of the human brain and we tend to weight heavily upon things where atomically it actually seems fairly simple. Um, is, is this even taken into account when you're creating, uh, when, when GPT three is created and, Actually, first question, I mean, do you, how do you view the human brain as far as complexity in different areas that are either underrated or overrated when trying to weight it against an AI? I'm in the camp that thinks that human brains are overrated, but it's yeah. something that I hold relatively lightly. I would basically say there is a, a probab certain probability that we could run the functional equivalent of a person on a large PC. Right. So it's basically something that you can buy for 20K and put into your uh, office. And uh, the thing is, we don't have the right algorithms. 
Yeah, it's, somehow it's a, there. It seems like a misleading thing that every neuroscientist says of, you know, the human brain has more synapses than all the potential atoms in the universe, and 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 immediately puts it out of the grasp of anything that can be modeled in any way. Um, this this happens. So so then a neuroscientist will spend their time trying to understand a small portion of the brain, or they will <laughs> try. To, so they they will give up on. Uh, They'll either do that or, you know, be very reductionist about part of it, or they will look at it as a psychologist. Um, I'm, I, I somehow think that both of those, both of those points are different than what you're saying. Um, it, am I right about that? Yeah, I think that uh, we don't give enough credit to what cells are doing. Cells are pretty complicated. Uh, a neuron is doing way more than uh Uh, an artificial neuron that does a, a weighted sum over its inputs and maps it against the activation function. Uh, the uh, neural network uh, in, um, in our brain is quite sophisticated in the sense that the individual units are autonomous and self-directed. The individual neuron tries to succeed in the large organization. It's locked up with all these other neurons in the dark room, which is your skull, which has a destiny with them. And uh, so it's forced to succeed in a way. And it's uh, going to locally converge to a particular role. And uh, it only works because it's the brain starts out roughly with the right architecture. So uh, it doesn't get stuck in uh, local minima while trying to approach uh, this optimum function. But the issue is similar to uh, people forming an intelligent organization or a society. Most of what the individual thinks and feels and wants does not contribute to the organization or society. Most of the complexity of a person's mind is directed on individual survival and the relationship to its neighbors. And very little goes into the comparatively into the complexity of the organization. So an organization is much easier to model that in, in, than an individual even, right? Because it constrains the functional role of the individual in, in those ways in which the uh, it becomes controllable for the organization. And the same thing happens to the brain. The brain is in some sense only interested in the functionality of the neuron to the degree that it contributes to the larger function of the brain and the brain can actually contribute uh, control this contribution of this individual neuron. Fascinating. Where, where do, how do you explain the lack of um, energy needed to control this complex organism versus what, what would be required for a, you know, a complex neural net system that's running something with even close to equivalent amount of, of knowledge? Uh, the amount of compute that... The computers that we are building are meant to run software that are handcrafted by individuals in symbolic processes. So the uh, models that we make up in our mind to construct software in some sense are decision trees. They are rest fundamentally on a binary logic in our own minds. Programmers think very much in a binary logic. And they use uh, sub-symbolic processes to deal with the computational complexity of this binary logic to discover the algorithms that they need. So they have heuristics that they train. But uh, ultimately, our programs are always constructive mathematics. And uh, we want these programs to run exactly the same on all the machines that we deploy. This is the great uh, uh, boon that we get from computer science, right? We have an extremely complicated machine with uh, an incredible amount of moving parts and uh, It works the same way in every office that we deploy it or in every home that we deploy it and every application that we deploy it. And to make that happen, it needs to be completely deterministic. 
And this determinism is very expensive. Basically, almost all of the energy that goes into our computers goes into making them deterministic. They are not completely deterministic. Sometimes a bit will flip in your memory cells, but uh, then we add error correction algorithms on top of that and redundancy and so on that make sure that uh, this basically never manifests uh, very often within a human lifetime. So you can, uh, without loss of generality, pretend that this system is giving you perfect determinism. And biological systems don't do that. They, everything is there, uh, there is best effort. Be deterministic. Uh, the thing that we can use in our brain is the deterministic part. But the world that we are controlling uh, can only be understood to a certain degree. So uh, ultimately, it's sufficient if we are probabilistic controllers that uh, get it right to the noise threshold of our own perception and the accuracy of our models. And so we, if you want to have more determinism, we take parts that are better than chance and cascade them until they become deterministic enough for a certain task. And the problem is that the algorithms that these systems uh, will embody and implement are going to work slightly different uh, depending on the particular properties of the substrate that they are on. They are error-correcting, self-correcting, self-stabilizing. But we have to understand the brain more in terms of self-organization than uh, comparing it to a von Neumann machine. So so I, I, what I'm getting fast, really fascinating. You're, you, you have a sense that if, if humans were either sort of Turing complete or without error, you know, this or more deterministic, it, it would be as expensive as computing. I mean, you know, as far as processing. Yeah, yeah pretty deterministic. I'm, I woke up after surgery um, in the ER and it was a long surgery and they gave me a serious stuff that have shut down my long term memory formation. And uh, I asked people how the surgery went uh, in detail. And then uh, I fell asleep again and I woke up again and had the same conversation and I didn't know that. And I had the uh, same conversation like five times, I was told. And uh, it was surprisingly deterministic. So uh, the reason why sure. uh, you and me uh, don't appear to be deterministic is uh, because we have memories that uh, prevent us from exploiting uh, or exploring the same region of the search space multiple times. Yeah. Right. This is I mean, one I, of the I, most important jobs of memory to make sure that we don't repeat. And we, you know, when we get older, we repeat ourselves more because we form less memory traces of our conversations and of our own thoughts. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, right. So it's our 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 life is trying to sneak around the idea that we are actually that we are deterministic, maybe without any sense of free will. So as soon as we start to catch ourselves saying the same thing or doing the same thing, we notice it and correct for that to, yeah. in order to feel human. Yes, right. <laughs> it's uh, it's not really related to free will, but it's related to our illusion of free will. Right. To our, right. I mean, yeah, right. Well, I mean, you could say that yeah, it's, it's related to free will and the fact that we make the assumption that there isn't free will other than this sort of false sort of a or the sense of agency to to deny who that that we are ignoring just saying the same thing over and over again yeah i suspect that free will is misunderstood this is what i meant by the illusion of free will it's not that we don't have free will it's just we are confused about what it is i think that free will relates to the ability to do what's right it's uh, related to agency and this leads to a paradox that is if you uh, know what's right your degrees of freedom diminish 
your degrees of freedom are highest when you have no idea what you're doing. But it also means that what you're doing doesn't mean anything. It's essentially random, right? When you don't know what you're doing. Right. And right. success I, in this world depends on having deep models. So when you have deeper and uh, longer reaching models and are able to execute on them, you will succeed over all the others. So in, in, a, in a sense, you know, when, when I think of free will, I often just associate it completely with determin determinism, you know, which is different than agency. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you know, in a sense, you know, you have the universe behaves according to the laws of physics, most of which, you know, you know, I, and I don't throw these sort of quantum fluctuations as being a way to say that there's no determinism in the universe the mm -hmm. way people um, sometimes do when, when justifying a spirituality or something. But uh, I've, I've, all, I've sometimes made this argument that humans are actually pretty, pretty simply deterministic compared to maybe a, a single nanoparticle inside of, you know, a, a, a complex substrate, for instance. And, mm -hmm. and, and then we get into this because it's, it's just really hard to predict. You know, I'm, I'm a polymer rheologist, this really weird field that no, that there's 500 of us in the world or something. Study a nanoparticle, goes through a elastomeric system under different strains and temperatures. You really, it's, it's impossible to model where this thing will go, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. But it's not that difficult for me to come fairly close to know where you will be at seven o'clock in the morning with the degree of freedom that it might be eight o'clock, you know, it's it, it, in the course of your life versus that time constraint of that single nanoparticle. <laughs> but absolutely nobody knows what I'm talking about or agrees with me about that. <laughs> but it, it, the difference is that there's this sense of, a, of, of agency and freedom with, a, uh, with, with a human. Um, and, uh, you know, and that the particle must be behaving according to the laws of physics, like, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, a planet rotating around the sun. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that somehow that could just be an annoying philo philosophical argument that goes throughout the ages. But if you're creating something like an AI, it, it could become an interesting problem to deal with. And I don't, and I don't see many, many. I, I don't see many of us working in the field of AI actually dealing with that. I think that a neuron is far less deterministic than a human being, and that's basically because if you put this uh, neuron into the same situation, with the same starting state, uh, it's uh, the outcome of that situation is well, going to have greater variance than yeah, the outcome the of the behavior of a human being. Around. Right. I mean, it's, it's got a, it's got a couple choices. <laughs> you know, yeah. an individual neuron is not. Yes. It, but the, basically it's behavior depends very much on the weather and uh, the behavior of a human being, uh, human being uh, depends slightly less on the weather than it does for the individual neuron. It's because uh, the human brain combines many, many neurons to regulate the overall behavior in such a way that uh, it corrects for the behavior of individual neurons. That's for instance, the reason why when you fixate a single point uh, without making saccades, uh, the whole uh, world to, will turn gray after a while because right. uh, your brain thinks that the neurons in your retina sending always the same uh, result is basically a burn-in effect or a faulty pixel. So it's going to filter out these faulty pixels from your vision if they don't change in a particular right. way. Yeah, I think reconstruction, of, of visual reconstruction due to, you know, mm -hmm. micro these things is such a key component of 
must be a key component to the way we think beyond the reconstruction of just visual yeah. Um, yeah. context. And it's rarely talked about, at least with people I speak about. Yeah, I think the brain it's, is it's full of stack pixels. I mean, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I work... I work in image processing and these things. So, I mean, I think about it all the time, you know, but, mm -hmm. you know, what, what's the resolution of a camera versus the resolution of our eyes versus the Abbey limit of light. And, you know, and, and then I think it was amazing sort of, you know, vivid reconstructions that we can have um, due to, you know, fairly limited amount of pixels in our, you know. There's uh, also the question, how much resolution do we need? It's right. Uh, nature right. gives us a much, much higher resolution that is necessary for performing the function minimally well we are uh, uh, endowed with luxury vision because we are competing um, on the margins not just with basic functionality so if it's possible for uh, the brain to uh, for uh, an evolutionary process uh, to give us 10 times uh, the um, visual neurons that we then we need to make sense of the world if we can get higher resolution more detail then we will have that right so we probably can do Uh, the same basic functionality with a subset of the brain. Right. Yeah, that, no, um, that's really interesting. I, you know, I'm jumping around a bit, but it, it's still about, last time I spoke to you, well, maybe it wasn't the last time, but one of the times I saw you recently, you, you made the case that a quantum computer not only doesn't exist, but you didn't believe to be possible. Do you still believe that? Do you still think that's true? That, I think that, that was before, I mean, that was before supposed quantum supremacy was achieved. It was before a kind of rate, but just slightly before. So I still don't know whether quantum computers uh, are possible or not. I think that we can build machines that can calculate quantum mechanics faster than uh, a classical computer can. But this has to do with the way uh, quantum mechanics is formulated, possibly. But the, uh, let's look at the thesis of quantum computing. The, the thesis, in my view, is that uh, it's, uh, well, is it possible that you can build a machine that calculates faster than a finite state machine, than a physically realizable Turing machine? And mm -hmm. uh, which means, is, does the Church-Turing thesis actually hold or not? And I'm not sure if all uh, computer scientists realize the gravity of some of the claims that some of the people in the field of quantum computing make, that it's possible to execute algorithms efficiently that cannot be executed efficiently on a quantum, uh, on a classical computer. It means in a way that you can describe computation in a way that does not require you from, to go from state to state in a deterministic fashion. And uh, we know that uh, all these... Um, Models that describe uh, going from state to state in a deterministic fashion, like the lambda calculus or the Turing machine or uh, any programming language, have the same power. How is it possible that a quantum computer has a different power in this sense? And I think the, the answer to this is, in a way, it's, it's not that the mathematics, the, the constructive mathematics are wrong. The constructive mathematics is just constructive mathematics. It's the part of mathematics that works and can be implemented in any kind of universe. I think the main thesis of quantum computing is that the particle universe in which we build our classical computers is inefficiently implemented on the substrate, on the quantum universe. 
And this means, uh, for instance, that the uh, quantum universe is branching all the time and it's computing lots and lots of other things beyond the particle dynamics that we observe. It's like, imagine you build Minecraft on a, a CPU on your computer. There is a polynomial time difference between the time in Minecraft and uh, the time on your CPU, right? Because it, uh, there's a polynomial time algorithm that will calculate Minecraft on your CPU. You can build a computer in Minecraft that uh, performs the same calculations as uh, the CPU, but it's going to be much, much slower. And it's going to be a polynomial time factor by which it's being slowed down. And quantum mechanics basically says that uh, the uh, relationship between the CPU that runs our universe, the quantum universe, and uh, the uh, relationships that we normally interact with, the Minecraft relationships in our classical universe, are uh, more than polynomial, which means... Uh, we are super slow. And uh, so quantum computing hopes to connect to the substrate in such a way that we can harvest some of this uh, computation in a more efficient way than particles normally can. And this is a very bold hypothesis. Right? <laughs> and uh, it's so far, in my view, unproven that it works uh, to the degree that I understand it, but I wouldn't rule it out. So it's, it's a little bit of a software problem in a sense. So how, how would you... You know, I mean, I, it, more, most people would think of this, yes, as a substrate problem or, you know, uh, dealing with error correction. But you think even the communication to be able to to have to activate qubits in such a way that it gives you anything more than a classic computer. It doesn't make sense. Is that is that the idea? Uh, I think that part of the description that we get in quantum mechanics uh, is very, very inefficient because it uses uh, inefficient mathematics to describe what's going on. For instance, um, mm -hmm. uh, we assume that space is given in most parts of physics. And space is this continuous thing that uh, has uh, a perfect embedding in uh, the real numbers or uh, in multidimensional complex numbers. And, and uh, these, this embedding is not computable. So uh, imagine that you would look at the relationship between uh, a nucleus of an atom and an electron that is uh, entangled with this nucleus and uh, in such a way that uh, it's, it's bound to it, uh, what is the position of this uh, electron relative to the nucleus? And uh, if there is a space, then you should be able to triangulate this position in some sense, describe it with coordinates relative to uh, the nucleus uh, or as a region relative to the nucleus. And it turns out you cannot describe it with coordinates, you need to describe it with a region. And uh, this region describes the potential of encountering the electron, uh, right? And this uh, region itself has infinitely more points than uh, a single location. And this me means that it's uh, infinitely more expensive to compute. And you can, of course, give a decent approximation by not computing infinitely many points, but sampling a few of these points. But you will have to do so if you want to model the interaction of multiple electrons around a nucleus or uh, between nuclei or between atoms, right? But what if there is no space to begin with? What if uh, what we call space is just the limit of having a lot of locations and uh, these locations can hold information and then there we have trajectories along which the information can flow. And this is what we call space-time. And as soon as we have too many locations to count, we discover regularities in there that exist mathematically in the limit. But this doesn't mean that, they, uh, that the space is real. The space is an approximation. And uh, if the electron itself is not in space, it means that assigning coordinates to it is something that the universe itself never did. We are trying to, uh, to uh, calculate indices that physics is not itself calculating. 
it's an artifact of using mathematics that were just, uh, used before Gödel. It was before the constructivist turn in mathematics in a way, non-computable mathematics. Basically, physicists have checked out a code base from the mathematicians without reading the comments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> what do you think of what, what do you think about Wolfram's new ideas and how it may relate? I uh, think it's very sad that Wolfram uh, has never been able to interface well with the community of physicists. Uh, yeah. I think that he had uh, an enormous uh, set of insights at a very young age. It has uh, also led to um, amazing piece of technology, Mathematica. And uh, Mathematica is not very effective, right? We should not be using Jupyter notebooks, which is like poor man's Mathematica. We should all be using a better version of Mathematica. Uh, Wolfram uh, discovered in his 20s, in his early 20s, that uh, we need to rewrite the entire code base of mathematics in a computable form. And this is what he set out to do. And he didn't do this as an open source approach or something that would uh, integrate a large part of academia because he realized that academia was not willing to listen to him. Wow. And uh, he put this down to the, re uh, the reason for this is that most people are stupid. This is basically his theory. And there is a lot of evidence for that theory. So uh, you cannot blame him for having that theory when he tries to explain Uh, why uh, people are not adopting Mathematica and his perspective on the universe. Right? It's true that most of the physicists that criticize him for being a crackpot uh, understand far less physics than he does. Yeah, and uh, I... that is really a tragedy because uh, it would be better if there were basically people that would be able to take some genius like Stephen Wolfram by the hand and tell him, how to interface with others to build something that uh, contributes to our hive mind. I, yeah, I, I love that. I, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I've, I've been, I've been very frustrated with that too. The dismiss, the dismissal of, 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 of Wolfram before it even, before an idea even comes out is, is, insane to me considering the both the intellect we're dealing with and the amount of influence that that it has had beyond the academic uh you know physics world or mathematics world it sort of exists somewhere in between and i i find it a shame like there's not there's not there's an, a, a strange lack of knowledge transfer for some one of the most successful intellectuals of of, of a generation Well, there is no space for intellectuals in this sense, be at least not anymore. I think that in order to be a successful intellectual, you need to have a resonant body in society. And uh, the purpose of intellectualism in the U.S. currently, and the U.S. Uh, has the largest intellectual uh, community left uh, of any of the Western nations, is uh, in some sense either entertainment uh, or economic purpose. There is uh, very little vision in terms of advancing uh, the Uh, cultural understanding of humanity this, this vision of advancing the hive mind of advancing civilization's understanding of things doesn't really exist anymore uh, at the level of our societies our universes yeah. are easily captured by cults because they don't know what they're for right so right in in, in and those cults don't even achieve the whether what you mentioned earlier sort of efficient but unfortunate um, cults of religion that were able to think a generation ahead. Uh, we don't even have a 
coherent cult <laughs> that well, can think, they, they think forward in, or even have intellectual discord to do with. So yeah, right. I, I think it's legitimate to say that the U.S. has not succeeded in uh, producing good outcomes for most of its citizens and leverage its enormous productivity gains to the benefit of all. And uh, at some point, uh, people give up patience with the system and you cannot force anyone to uh, conform to the logic of a system by which they lose. Right? Even if this uh, logic is rational. Why should you subscribe? Why would it be individually rational to you to uh, subscribe to a rationality by which you lose? So uh, you will have people that are not very good physicists, but that realize that STEM pays better than humanities and maybe have more DARPA projects and so on. And that will try to change the politics of uh, giving uh, grant money to them. So in some sense, there are economic migrants. They move into academic fields that are meant to solve the deepest questions of humanity, and they are mostly interested in feeding their families. But it, this is a legitimate goal, individually, to want to feed your family. Yeah. I mean, this is something that's also come up in conversations with us in the past, is this sort of degrading of intellectual integrity. Sometimes that, even to the extent that the person doesn't know that their intellectual integrity has been degraded, But is this part, is, is this mostly due to the survival mechanisms you're talking about, that this is the way you deal with a place where it only makes sense to survive this way? I think it has to do with awareness in the sense that you are able to model the world at sufficiently many levels in, in, in the long term and you understand your role in it. Spirituality is a very good example. I think that most people uh, have a sense that they that there's something sacred that is more important than their ego and that they want to serve. And if you take this away from them, then their life has no more meaning. And uh, a lot of these people will become drug addicts or homeless or uh, they will burn out or will become uh, sink into dark depression. And this is actually true for a lot of people. They don't perceive this meaning anymore. But this greater whole that we are serving is not some superstitious boo-boo uh, god Uh, that is supernatural and uh, creates universes in his spare time. Uh, it's not some uh, mystical deity. It's not some fairy tale god. It's civilization. It's basically uh, has the same relationship to us as cells have to an organism, as an ant has to an anthill. It's the thing that we are meant to be part of that is more important than us and our immediate uh, family relationships. And families can only replace this to a certain degree. And if you don't have that thing anymore, if you don't have culture anymore that is directed on a civilization, you develop a phantom limb. And the spirituality that most people have left in the U.S. is like a phantom limb. It's basically something that is aimless and seeking and latches onto superstitions. And uh, if you are in science, it's easy to say that you will replace the search for truths uh, with your need for spirituality, for instance. And you see the scientific mission Uh, as uh, as that spiritual purpose. And it's close, but it's not quite true. It, it does work, but it's uh, difficult to uh, mount a defense from this perspective against people who think that the sacred is to uh, give more money to uh, disenfranchised minorities, even if this goes to the detriment of science. Yeah, it, I find myself in this conversation having to, ha <laughs> having to live with it a bit before jumping in because I don't prepare questions. I've tried to... Uh, it's, you know, I, I, I still wonder about, I'm still trying to get a hold of the sense of planning 
And this is a question we've already talked about. So, you know, I, I feel like this, you know, this, uh, this old deterministic being that is repeating myself after surgery or something the second time. But, um, you know, if you're there, there's a sense of not moving forward. If you're, if discourse doesn't exist or discourse being maybe, uh, you know, maybe synonymous with in, in intellectual, um, you know, you know, intellectualism in some way, in some regard. Um, if I, I have this sense that we, we, we degrade based on our, our inability to upgrade because our conversations no longer occur because they're not allowed to occur for mm-hmm. some reason. Um, what is what is the biggest force that's not allowing them to occur? And this is, I'm not talking about just, you know, even mass society. I'm talking about some of our greatest intellects, right? So those things that would be, you know, that people would think of being as intellectuals that, that we can actually look at and say, no, they're saying the same thing over and over again. And they're not, they haven't, inter- they haven't, Um, updated in the sense that they are either willing to risk their career on changing their mind or, you know, what, what, what has changed to make that the case? If you even think that is the case. I think if you are a top level physicist and uh, you uh, would see yourself confronted with the choice of saying something that uh, helps to advance physics or something that uh, helps you to maintain a successful career, it would be irrational to stop having your career because it will turn you into a hobbyist. And there's only so much that you can achieve in your spare time without access to the resources of academia and your colleagues. Is that always been the case? I think so, yes. I think that in some sense, uh, all of science and philosophy exists at the whim of kings, of uh, the actual powerful structures in society. So you uh, basically need to have people that are able to understand the economic realities of the world and the social realities of the world. And that also think that it's valuable to have people that only care about truth. And these are weird people and uh, that are willing to uh, give these weird people enough money and safety so they can continue looking for truth. So that's and, the idea of tenure, right? I mean, that's what that's supposed to be the idea of tenure, but it doesn't seem to play out that our 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 greatest professors are the most likely to update their ideas with with new evidence at least i don't see that yeah I th- but i think that there is some uh this is not necessarily a dramatic thing if you uh, think about in long enough time spans i don't think it's necessary that individuals remain uh f- flexible uh mentally for an arbitrary amount of time this is for most people not human nature Right. Uh, if you look at somebody like um, Wolfram or Chomsky or Minsky, they have not been successful because they change their minds so often when people talk back to them. They have been successful because they pushed through with their ideas and they continue developing their own ideas, regardless of what everybody else has said. And uh, this is very dangerous when you get disciples that are unable to question their uh, uh overlords uh, anymore and uh, these disciples begin to dominate a field because this is uh, toxic to the development of new ideas but as long as you have enough diversity of ideas in the field uh, you don't take uh, the opinions of the authority as gospel but you take them as important steps in the intellectual development of a discipline 
then uh, Chomsky uh, thinking the wrong thing about linguistics is not a problem at all, right? Or Minsky uh, talking about neural networks should not be a problem as long as there are enough other people uh, which believe uh, that cybernetics would be continued to be explored, right? You could argue that deep learning at this point is the cybernetics that Minsky fought against. So, so d d w because so you're saying because we we all or at least somebody like me really looked up to Minsky as a type of you know you know as a type of mentor or I would you know or hero in a sense like intellectual hero that that there were enough of us that that's what killed out cybernetics in a sense. Yes, I mean uh, it was probably Minsky himself who uh, consciously contributed to the demise of cybernetics in the U.S. and in the West and ultimately in the world. Well, but yeah, but it was the, it was up to the he couldn't actually do that if if there weren't a lot if we weren't all blindly following Minsky because of his previous accomplishments. It was not just his previous accomplishments. Uh, Minsky continued to be grandiose. And, and I don't mean this in any ironic sense. Uh, Minsky is, uh, has been a tremendous intellectual influence for a good reason. He was super smart and very deep. And uh, this doesn't mean that he gets everything right. I think that in order to be uh, super smart and super deep, you need to take risks. And these risks means that you make commitments that where you don't know whether they will pan out or not. And it's not your job to make sure uh, that uh, everybody else is going in a different direction because you could be wrong. It's, uh, it's also very hard to expect individuals to have that self-awareness that they could be wrong and to make sure that somebody else is pursuing the alternatives. They are more terrified of the idea that they could be right and uh, everybody else is not seeing that enough. So uh, this is typically what happens with these uh, great intellectuals. And they mostly uh, of them, uh, most of them are a little bit autistic, at least. And this also means that they don't really understand this uh, integrated mind that exists uh, beyond them where the individual is just a part of a larger tradition it's also often that we notice that many of these existing traditions are so stupid because they converge to the lowest common denominator of uh, what the great minds think right if you have some kind of consensus opinion in a field um, you should be wary if this is about a, a complicated subject uh, the, if the question is simple, then the consensus is justified. But if it's complicated, this, uh, we will find out that the consensus will probably be different in 10 years from now, which means it is wrong. Yeah, there are yeah. political forces that create consensus. There are very few rational forces that give you consensus. Yeah. You know, I mean, that sort of makes me think about how we, we, we look at popular science books or popular technology books, things that are are, um, you know, the largest amount of people will be able to understand. Um, and, you know, most, uh, most of our most famous scientists right now write books that, you know, are meant for a general public. And uh, I'm wondering if that, when I'm listening to you, if that can be problematic if those scientists end up always being, you know, their goal being to, reduce a, a, a complex idea that still needs to be worked through to such a level that it's communicated. Um, I, do, you, do you consider that a problem? It just occurred to me that, that what I admire about very clear writers in fields that I don't understand, I, I tend to admire that, but I admire it if Feynman did it. I don't necessarily admire it if, if, if it's something that doesn't 
put it, it, it doesn't help bridge my ideas to something else. I don't know. Have you th given that a thought at all? Of course. Uh, for instance, uh, I noticed when I entered cognitive science that a lot of the linguists that I worked with didn't like Pinker. And uh, I always liked Pinker because I learned so much from him. And then I realized that the difference was not that they thought that Pinker was wrong and I thought that Pinker was right. But they expected when Pinker talks to the public, what he says needs to be authoritative. It needs to be uh, basically the envelope of what uh, linguists are thinking at the time. And it's not. Uh, Pinker is very strongly influenced by certain people and by certain ideas, and he collates them and he uh, is able to transport them by, like very few others in his generation. Uh, but if you don't take his, this as gospel, but you take this as an intellectual stepping stone, it's grandiose. It's really useful to get people into this field. And I believe that Pinker has really gotten a lot of people interested in cognitive science and linguistics and artificial intelligence. And not because his ideas were always correct, but uh, because they showed a way of thinking about problems that is, is useful to reflect about the world. So I see these books more as a contribution to a dialogue, and this dialogue can take place on all sorts of levels. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, what's wrong is when uh, people uh, overestimate their ability to follow this dialogue, and uh, if the entire conversation is not being had by adults that basically can criticize their own understanding and realize how much of the foundations do I really understand to judge what's written in this book. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I like to read on any topic that I don't have um, any time or maybe even cognitive ability to become an expert on if it, if it, you know, introduces me to something. The danger is when I've read that book and think that I'm the expert in it if I don't dig any further. And, you know, and, you know, when you d dig further far enough to say you're an expert, that's also kind of a dangerous point too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, but nevertheless. Yeah, is a good example. He basically wrote this book together with Popper that uh, could prove that uh, perceptrons cannot learn even XOR, a simple function. And uh, this uh, was enough for uh, the funding agencies to uh, stop funding neural networks. Because uh, here was a clearly intelligent scientist who had shown that an entire class of models was doomed and we would need to build intelligent systems in different ways. And uh, the arguments of other experts in the field that says, no, we have ways around this uh, what Minsky is doing. This is just a particular case that he's looking at. He's not looking at the entire class of algorithms, just at a very particular solution, right? And the uh, people already knew what deep learning would be doing back then. And uh, it was just not funded anymore. And it's not Minsky's fault that the funding agencies were not smart enough. And, and he uh, also basically said that it was not, not his fault that the funding ended. But of course, uh, in some sense, it was his goal. Uh, he, he politically, I think, had the goal of uh, stopping this kind of research. And Why? The, well, the, why? Dig, dig into that a little bit. And also, you know, kill, killing cybernetics versus... Deal, you know, the ubiquity of deep learning. Um, can, can you walk walk me through a little bit the good and the bad of that and where, you know, Minsky falls into this? So uh, as a warning, what I say here is not authoritative. It's my own perspective and it might be wrong. But uh, before I got to Cambridge and got to know Minsky in person, I believed that Minsky was the good guy. And uh, 
basically he was the one who understood that artificial intelligence, the cognitive science, that you need to read Piaget, that you uh, need to make a systemic philosophy to do AI in the right way. And uh, that uh, you also need to incorporate language and so on. And uh, most of the field fell off the true belief because it was too hard and built simplistic systems. And ultimately the simplistic systems won out because of a short term research interest in career prospects. That was the, my simplified perspective. And uh, after I got to Cambridge, uh, I realized that Minsky uh, was actively inhibiting attempts to uh, do neural networks and cybernetics in his time because they thought he thought that they were too simplistic. And in a way, he was right. They were simplistic. Too simplistic. Yes. But uh, he thought that they were simplistic in the sense that it was not worth pursuing them in any way. Not uh, that they were at the time too simplistic and wouldn't need to be integrated with other things. Uh, he was an authoritarian in this sense. And if you start yelling at people and you are extremely eminent and successful in what you do, you typically don't get everybody to join you. You create a large area of burned ground around your field, the cognitive AI. So basically he married cognitive AI with symbolic AI. And I think this was the mistake. I think that uh, cognitive AI should have been agnostic with respect to whether it's symbolic or not. Ah, and okay. So, so this so rift I, exists I, and it seems oh. until today because uh, AI researchers are still not reading Piaget for the most part. And the people that read Piaget don't look at AI very much. And the people that are still uh, Minsky's disciples, for the most part, don't look at deep learning and don't understand what has been working there and why. It's it's really interesting. I would think of as a per, uh, a perceptron as being you know more like a deep learning system than a symbolic system. Yes. So uh, he basically he was against the perceptron because he thought the perceptron, as we know it, is too simple. And uh, if we make the it's perceptron like larger, it's not going to overcome these problems, but its deficiencies are going to become more glaring. Despite his contribution to it. Yes. Yes. So uh, he, he looked at it, he uh, studied it, he didn't say this lightly, he was wrong, but he didn't say this without having studied the problem. He just got to the wrong conclusion. <laughs> oh, so interesting. I, he, so you can really not blame him. It's basically, he saw uh, the people are trying to uh, ride the wrong horse here. We should get all the resources on uh, in my direction. Let's stop these faulty re uh attempts of people that have no idea what they're doing. And even when he realized that his proofs were not completely authoritative, he still felt uh, that uh, it's better to uh, pretend that they were and not talk to the funding agency and tell him, you know, maybe you should fund these people too. And he had, he had the power to actually be able to get funding, you think, at the time? Or do you think that it really was such a different funding environment that if there was going to be funding for anything, he, he felt the necessity to take a different approach? I think it was about the dominance of different uh, philosophies in the funding agencies at the time. So it's about what kind of efforts should be pushed further, what's going to be successful and give results in 10 to 20 years from now. And he was able to shift this perception. And I think he did it deliberately. Oh, yeah, I, I've never heard anybody say it like that. Um, now we live in a very different world when we talk about AI funding, which is the largest companies in the world with the most money possible are working in the field, even if it's research and research that may never get out of 
those companies or get out of corporate life, it's completely different. So you would make a decision in a different way based on it being a ton of money there, maybe an excess of money. Uh, Can you speak to that at all or any thoughts you have? Yeah, we have basically have several intellectual traditions that compete. And um, you could say that philosophy is one. Philosophy is the attempt to organize people around uh, what's true, what's the case. And it starts out with natural language. Then you have mathematics that uh, realizes from the start that all the philosophy has to be done in a language and that natural language is not good enough. So we need to make language in which we can build truths. And uh, we do this by defining what truth is. And so now we can make proofs. And we start out with these formal languages. And the hope is that mathematics and philosophy meet at some point. And I believe that this missing link between them is, uh, in some sense, using these formal systems to uh, be able to deal with perception and uh, reasoning in a similar way as human beings do it only more systematically. And this is AI. It's basically the attempt of automating the human intellect based on mathematical principles. And uh, another intellectual tradition is econ. It's one that I didn't see for a very long time. By the way, philosophy seems to be almost dead as a philosophical tradition or as, a, or as an intellectual tradition. It makes very little progress. And it's uh, partly because it doesn't get funding anymore. But, uh, it's no accident that the Templeton Foundation is so influential because it's, uh, I think, the biggest funder of philosophy these days. And it's not because it's so rich. It's because society pays so little for it because it doesn't see enough returns from investing into it. And so the people that work in philosophy are largely those that didn't have a formal education because those with a formal education left the room for greener pastures. And so philosophers are doomed to only understand the introductory uh, sections of scientific papers and books. And then uh, they talk about this with other philosophers and it's largely inconsequential for the individual disciplines. Our physicists have become kind of philosophers that don't like to admit it. And so they don't become particularly good philosophers and aren't doing a lot of physics. A lot of the time, too. I think that the foundational physics community is extremely small. And it's uh, basically when people think about physics, they don't realize that most of it is quite mundane material science and engineering and so on. And the uh, this amazing stuff that we are concerned about feeds very few people ultimately. So this is a community of a few thousand people in which you have a few hundred substantial thinkers. It's still quite a bit, but it's not that large. And uh, but larger than the philosophy, the, the official philosophy funded community. It's hard to say. I suspect that there are more people that write philosophical texts than people that are write, uh, write foundational physics texts. And uh, they, the physicists typically have uh, more of a formal education than the philosophers do. Still, it seems to be very hard to make progress with the given paradigms. Right. Yeah, I'd still say there's equally amount of not amazing new philosophical ideas or philosophical thinkers or theoretical physicists. Yeah. Um, there are some, and I have great respect for them, but it, you know, there, there were more. Oh, it's, seven it's years one ago. of the nicest communities I know. I'm super grateful oh, whenever I have the chance to be among physicists. Uh, oh no, me too. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to put down all the phys- physicists, but it, it's still, it's still a, uh, you know, it's still not maybe as as vibrant, um, you know, as one would like, or it's also maybe it's okay to to go ahead and blend it in with philosophy. 
or do these have to be demarcated still? I, I don't think that we can afford to have these strict demarcations. We can afford to have slightly differences in the core question. And the core question of uh, mathematics, I think, is uh, how can we build a language in which we can determine what's true in a way and uh, apply this. It's maybe too specific, but roughly in this in this vein. Uh, for philosophy, it's uh, slightly broader. Right? We want to figure out what's the case in the world and what we can know about the world and what we should be doing in the world. And uh, econ is about how can you change bits in the world? So what's the most valuable thing to, to change things? Physics is looking for the function that uh, correlates adjacent universe states. And all these traditions are in some sense looking at the same thing. And they are asking a different core question that ultimately leads to the same models if they do it right. And we do observe this convergence, right? We observe a core, uh, convergence of causal modeling and uh, of uh, the idea of minimizing surprisal and uh, uh, maximizing uh, predictability of the future and uh, general theories of uh, how we can build models in artificial intelligence and so on. So, you know, I, I, I want, what are you up to? I'm not, what are you up to in your job? What, what are you, what are you reading, thinking about the most right now that was different than you were a year ago that we, that we should be paying attention to? Um, well, I do think that my job is, uh, is very lucky to be in. So I, I just want to, uh, to mention, it's not, uh, I am one of the lucky people that have a, a job that is very close to their interest. I basically got a very kind offer when, uh, at the time when I uh, thought about moving from Cambridge to uh, the West Coast for a while. And uh, people offered me to basically come to an AI company uh, and build a cognitive architecture that understands uh, emotion and motivation in, in humans and uh, maybe beyond that. And uh, that is also interested in artificial general intelligence. So AI Foundation is, uh, has been a very good place to, for me and uh, been very good to me and I uh, enjoy working there. But it, of course, it's a small company. It's a startup. And uh, the size of the team that uh, we can get together to work on these questions uh, with open-ended research is naturally small. But still, I'm, I'm super grateful to be here. And the West Coast is a place that is very open to weirdness in the sense uh, you can... Uh, it's more easy to be somebody like Stephen Wolfram here uh, than it is, uh, say, uh, in uh, Berlin or Vienna or uh, even in New York, I think. So uh, uh, there's seen to be value in diversity of thought. And this uh, used to be one of the greatest things about the U.S. Um, I, I think that the word diversity has often changed its meaning, but I think that diversity is one of the core assets of the U.S., most of the societies in the world that are successful are successful because they are very homogenous, which means people can coordinate very well. And this homogeneity is the result of past genocides and uh, population exchanges and uh, cultural forces like religions and so on that made sure that everybody who was not playing by the same rules didn't have offspring. And uh, Right. So uh, the U.S. is very different in this regard. It's uh, probably the only country in the world where you can get fully integrated as a first person immigrant, regardless of where you come from. 
as long as you play by useful rules and you can discover what works. The US is quite flexible about what rules uh, you have to adapt. And uh, in our everyday life, we often forget that because we don't contrast it with other societies. But the pressure of conformity is very higher if you are, say, in Japan or in China or in Germany or in Austria or in Scandinavia. Well, are those are those um, that lack of rigidity? First of all, is it are we becoming more rigid, or if not becoming more rigid, are we becoming more confused? Though that that matters less. I think that the U.S. is uh, easily to confuse. And that's uh, because there is not such a homogeneous culture that is aware of uh, what's going on, where it comes from and where it goes. So uh, you can easily get into a situation where the elites lose the plot and uh, the media are written by people that are not full adults. And uh, right, this uh, leads to a situation where uh, people uh, easily think uh, that they know what the best interests of the working class are and that society would work better if people uh, with the right uh, moral conceptions would be in power and that all the problems are the result of bad people having bad intentions. It's a very natural perspective to get. And um, it, I think it takes time for people to grow up. And uh, the U.S. is not always creating the right environment for uh, getting to this maturity as a society. Many of our leaders uh, are not systemic thinkers. What advice would you give in this regard that I, I, you know, if, if, I, if people think right now that their best hope will be to go and vote, <laughs> you know, in the election and that that will change under the underlying fundamental problems in our society. And, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think that 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 is the biggest thing. So, you know, it's almost a danger when you think that there is the best survival mechanism is a a single leader. Although we certainly have seen a lot of horrible leaders that and I believe, including now. Um, But what what is what is a good alternative for us to try to find some type of some type of way to coalesce behind purpose right now? In the United States specifically. I think the reason why organizations pretty much everywhere in the world, like uh, companies and countries, put a single individual at the top, despite success in these roles always being a team effort, is that uh, if, you, uh, if you don't do this, you would need to establish rules, like an algorithm that tells you how to govern that thing. Uh, the rule by committee is basically rule by algorithm. It means that you establish a set of rules that the committee is enacting to uh, perform things. By putting a single individual at the top, it means that the individual has an ability to set rules and to interpret them in the way that the individual thinks is right. And there will be checks and balances that make sure that uh, there is a limit to what the individual can do. So if the system clearly goes out of certain bounds that you can define uh, from the outside, You will try to catch these conditions and make sure that the system doesn't go off the rails. But uh, the reason why we have this individual in charge is because the rules to run a society or even a corporation are too complicated to express as an algorithm. It's like a machine learning problem on the real world. And uh, for the same reason that we cannot run a society by committee is exactly the same reason why we don't have self-driving cars yet. Because uh, the, the real world is so complicated that uh, the algorithms that we can handcraft for dealing with it are insufficient. We still need a human brain ultimately 
to make sense of them. That's the we don't have self-driving cars? Hmm? You really think that's why we don't have self-driving cars? I just want to know if this is just a, you know... Yeah, a, I think that's the main reason. I, I think there are enough people that, uh, that decided at some point, let's take the risk and uh, let's adopt the legislation and let's be optimistic about this. Uh, basically, people were uh, given a lot of freedom in the US, more than I thought that they would for deploying self-driving cars uh, in real-world situations. And the self-driving cars are uh, making fewer accidents than people do in, in some sense. But that's yeah. only because uh, most of the accidents are done by very, very few people. And uh, that means the self-driving car is not better uh, than uh, an average driver. It's only better than a really bad driver. And the bad drivers are the problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think, though, that even putting that aside, let's say that we do end up with a you know good self-driving car in a, a fairly short amount of time. I think there's been a kind of transition, maybe since COVID, but I, I go back and forth on this every other day, whether I'm more optimistic about society or whether I'm completely depressed and can hardly get out of bed because of um, our willingness to to either... Uh, take chances or, or have some sense of, um, you know, u- universal purpose to have technological advancements or whatever that might be. I mean, if you look at, you know, the speed of having a Moderna style vaccine, perhaps it looks very fast and interesting. Um, you know, how, how, how much are we dealing with risk aversion um, because of lack of pre-COVID threat that we felt? Um, ver- versus just actual stagnation. I suspect that's a problem of rent seeking. Every uh, thing that exists for a while is going to be filled with people that are trying to make a living in it. And uh, these people tend to be risk averse. Though they are interested is in some sense the perpetuation of the organization so they can have a job. But as long as the perpetuation of the organization is not in question, if, as long as you are too big to fail, the main uh, thing is how can you make sure that you stay in power, which means you need to build coalitions and uh, you need to feed them well. So uh, the uh, alternative uh, co- uh, coalitions are not going to win out against you. And so you get the situation that uh, Western societies after a while, and this is true for Germany in the same way as it's true for California, are no longer able to build public infrastructure. Because wherever you are directing resources, there is a sponge that is happily going to absorb all these resources without deploying much of that in terms of progress. And uh, it's hard to shake this up unless you can do it from the top. Well, I, you know, if, if, I, if I see, though, a pandemic coming, right, and, and then, you know, I, I, I sort of, I'm, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and, um, you know, I, I got sick with COVID very early. Um, and then you saw on my block, I live on a very small block and you saw, you know, an ambulance take one person after the next and it sort of started easing its way through the block. And then a nursing home that was this famous nursing home where 50 bodies were found. I mean, it's right, you know, a block away from me. And you sort of see these kind of impending threats that don't push, you know, mortality out to some time that you're hoping you live very long but you start to see it encroach around you, or maybe fires in California are doing that. I don't know. Um, I, I, and how I've, 
my, 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 the, the back and forth of this is in my, my mental dilemma is how long can we live in a state of feeling urgency to accomplish something because of that before slipping into feeling that there is no hope? Um, what I've found with COVID is that people actually completely close their eyes to it. It's it it ha- and this is what's been depressing about it to me is that I thought that as it comes down the block, you want to start inventing, you want to start learning, you want to try to figure this out, you want to start co- coordinating with anybody you possibly can to figure out how to deal with this, and. I've been disappointed about that not exactly being the case. At at the beginning, it was, you know, some people could call it a hoax because it was far away. When it was no longer far away, in our minds, it still feels like a hoax. And and I'm, I'm concerned about the human condition for that. Do you think that we've come out at all better for having experienced this? Or, or do you feel that we're generally in this state of, you know, stagnation or, or denial that somehow things are okay because we can, Skype, you know, have a Skype call or a Zoom call with each other? I think that public administration is hard. It's a job that is uh, best done by experts. And uh, it's uh, nevertheless a job where everybody feels entitled to have a very strong opinion about. <laughs> Right, uh, so this is a difficulty in this whole thing. It's it's not the responsibility of uh, an arbitrary person on the street to know what should be done in times of COVID, because this is hard stuff. Right, it needs to be uh, decided by very smart people that do understand the dynamics of society, and uh, of uh, that are able to get the advice from experts and to evaluate this advice oh, properly. Yeah. Really? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that a bit. You know, I, I've thought that the reliance on authority um, during COVID has actually been pretty dangerous. I mean, we had, author- we had every authority figure from Fauci to the WHO that said that masks were not useful at the beginning. And that's something that everybody could have Yeah, done the issue was that authority was so bad. The, the right. authority didn't work, and the uh, people that were uh, trying to amplify the voices of the authority were unable to judge whether the authorities were correct or not. And uh, I think the, this impulse to say, uh, let's try to curb conspiracy theories uh, about COVID is probably a good one, if the official theory is a good one. And uh, what happened was that uh, the media tried to indiscriminately, indiscriminately uh, curb uh, voices that were opposing the CDC, despite the CDC cl- clearly saying wrong things. Of course, we, let's not forget that many of the voices that objected to the CDC said worse things that were more wrong what the CDC was suggesting, right? But <laughs> h- how would a journalist decide? <laughs> but we got to this very weird situation uh, where uh, Matt Iglesias' blog was advising people to not wear masks uh, and not to buy them while he privately bought them. Yes. Yes. I, you know, I, I, we, I experienced something that, you know, we started to make, um, uh, by, by level pressure devices that are used generally for, you know, for sleep apnea, because I was seeing so many people die in, uh, hospitals doing to be, you know, because of poor protocol that led to intubation. Yes. Uh, early intubation with and, and I found that it was kind of, deliberate you know and that that was really 
that was the that was the worst part of it was this shock to me that another layer of authority, which was the hospital system, was complicit in this. Now, what what then we have something positive, which is we're able to make these and it actually changes protocol because we find a way to make people's lives a bit easier. So when you say that, well, it's not up to, you know, the, the person on my block, I mean, I'm a person on my block. I agree that we can't put that kind of pressure on ourselves and on everybody to make a, a big change, but to, to try to reason through which authority figures, um, should be denounced or which shouldn't be, I think becomes pretty important. We see that Black Lives Matter is an example of this when you talk about the authority of the police department. So I, I don't know that I agree with you completely that 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 you know our, that, that that there is no chance to try to see you know, progress coming from noticing what's going on. Oh, I do think that uh, you should, of course, always try to become situationally aware and understand what's going on. But uh, this also means that 60% of the population will end up with the wrong opinion because they're not very good at understanding what's going on and to sift through the information that's available to them. And they will uh, instead gravitate to uh, what their peers believe. And this is uh, almost random. And uh, what, uh, what was irritating to me and that I still don't understand is the mentality that has emerged in the U.S. to defer to people that uh, know less than you do if they are formally above you in the hierarchy. Yeah. So you have these extremely capable um, uh, people in hospitals that know how to develop tests and how to deploy them. And uh, they develop a test and they want to deploy it and they already do. And then uh, the FDA tells them not to. And instead to uh, first submit to a completely as in uh, Uh, process to, to legitimize the text, uh, test first that is uh, implemented by people that know way less than the person who is actually implementing this test in the hospital. And uh, there is a suspicion that the underlying reason is that uh, somebody made a deal with cronies about who is going to sell tests in the US. And uh, it, so I'm, I'm sometimes reluctant to say that everything should be explained by incompetence if it cannot be explained by people understanding their true incentives. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, this is this is a very weird situation. You know, this would be a very good time for uh, uh, the individual um, states in the U.S. to break free from the FDA. Yeah. To basically say that uh, California and uh, New York and everybody else is going to implement their own FDA, and then they might consolidate them. But we will start to have a competition between regulatory bodies uh, in all domains where the central authority has been captured and is not doing a good job anymore. And uh, why is this not happening? You could say it's not happening because it's not legal. But uh, nothing works in the U.S. The legal system at uh, the central level is also not working. I think that California is in a very comfortable situation if it tells Trump, sue me. Right? What's going to happen? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? And uh, there is nobody taking on this kind of responsibility for some reason. And uh, that stri uh, strikes me as incompetence. And it might simply be because it is actually incompetence, because the criteria by which we select our leaders are social criteria, not expertise in public administration. Yeah. But yeah, this deferring to authority, this, this was, uh, strikes me as insane. And it's often that uh, hospitals are trained in covering legal liability instead of uh, covering what needs to be done. And this might be because the U.S. lacks this shared purpose 
where the individual is not able to determine what is the sacred shared civilization that we are trying to perpetuate here. Instead, you open up the um, nursing homes to uh, people with COVID, right? You are importing people with COVID into a nursing home. What should have happened is the opposite. I think it was completely obvious from the start that nursing homes are the most vulnerable population uh, and that people are sitting in there very closely, have existing preconditions um, and so on. So uh, everybody who works in a nursing home needs to live in the nursing home, right? You, this would have been a point where you say, let's move the entire nursing home personnel, including their close families on campus. This would, would have needed to be done. And not doing this should have created a criminal liability for the people that were leading the nursing homes. So this is uh, basically the condition of becoming an administrator of the nursing home is you don't kill the inhabitants of the nursing home and uh, when you're a reasonably educated person can see that you are killing them. And they did, and nobody is being uh, sued. This is ridiculous. I know. I know. It, uh, no, it's shocking because, I mean, they really, and I wasn't saying this in an extreme way. It, it was true that I was stuck behind, you know, a, 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 a truck which was filling up bodies from the nursing home down the street for yeah. me. And it, I think it made the news in, for five minutes, but it's systemic of all everything going on in the nursing home system. And it didn't actually change right after that. Mm -hmm. Like one scandal of 50 bodies you would have thought would have shaken up society mm -hmm. in a major way. But, but what's, what's interesting is that this, it, it goes to this authority issue though. You, it's almost it's almost there's it's almost a faith thing too, not just a you know pre preservation of you know uh, liability or whatever that might be. Is somehow even a, a hospital worker or and those that are put putting themselves that are they're on the front lines in danger. You know they their their mortality is in front of them too. They're uh, are doing the things that continue to put them more in danger. And they know this. These aren't, these aren't, they definitely know, they are more aware of this than are the authority figures that they look up to. This is, this is really interesting because, you know, in the moment when you're, I mean, I've had health issues. I don't, I don't know what your health issues have been, but, but, you know, I've, I've had, I've been very close to hypoxia. I've been almost intubated. I've had a heart attack. I've had all these things happen to me. Um, and you know, in those moments, you don't, I, I, I don't really think about, you know, liability. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is exactly. Like, I'm so sorry God. to hear that by the way. So no, that was, been so, yeah. it was actually it informed It informed that. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's horrible. I'm, I'm, but you know, it was it informed, you know, I, I treated myself for COVID. I didn't go to a hospital. And then by treating myself, I now created something to treat others in the same way, right? So that they can treat themselves at home because I know how closely you're likely to end up in certain situations in hospitals that are dangerous. Um, not, not that hospital, hospitals serve an enormously important role. I don't mean to say that completely, but it is, it is strange to me that how close do you have to be to actually dying before you stop worrying, you know, deferring to an authority or, you know, to your, to um, a, a, what you thought was a self-interest like medical insurance before, before. Uh, I've been surprised by that. 
So uh, when I said that uh, public administration needs to be left to experts, uh, it doesn't mean that you should not uh, be interested in it, uh, especially if it's not done by experts, right? We need to make sure that it's done by the best people for the job and that they get right. the support that they need. And uh, the U.S. had that at some point. This was one of the biggest uh, power that it had, right? Many of the important policy decisions in the U.S. in the 40s and 50s were physicists calling the government and telling them what to do. And uh, and the government listening to them because they were smart people that had their networks uh, and uh, had important discussions among each other where they thought this is not just some beardo, but... uh, we should probably take care of uh, or take account of what they are saying. And this is not what's happening right now. We, uh, in this postmodernist world, uh, reality has become a social construct. A lot of people yeah. have to uh, stop believing that uh, there are physical facts. Facts seem to be a matter of agreement and interpretation. And uh, this makes it very hard for us to deal with a pandemic because uh, it's much, much more important to deal with the racism that could be interpreted in our to our reaction to a pandemic, right? The name of that thing is way more important than what we should be doing about it, suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it, an amazing thought. I mean, we were just, the people that we've even talked about, imagine, you know, uh, Stephen Wolfram or uh, David Deutsch sends a letter to, 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 you know, and sends an email to Trump. Would he open it and say, ah, oh, that's an interesting idea, <laughs> you know? And that yeah. becomes something that, I mean, it's, it's unthinkable that it becomes a joke. Yes. And the world used to work that way. You know, yes. No, interesting ago. question is: uh, Would have uh, Hillary Clinton opened this letter, and how would she have reacted to it? And uh, yeah. there is a slightly higher chance, I think. But uh, in during her tenure, uh, she did a lot of decisions uh, where the experts told her that she should not be doing them, like uh, destroying Libya. Right. <laughs> and uh, it was not. This was not clearly in the interest of the U.S. What happened there? I think what happened there was that somebody wanted to make a difference for good. Was acting on a moral perspective on the world, thought that this is not a democracy. You have an authoritarian uh, dictatorship as Gaddafi. We all don't like Gaddafi. If we remove Gaddafi, then uh, Libya will fall into the natural equilibrium that is justice. Right? You get to justice by removing injustice. This is a very modern, uh, very uh, contemporary perspective. But it's not true, right? Justice needs to be constructed. It's not something that uh, emerges naturally uh, if you remove power. The world is always in equilibrium between powers and freedom can only exist within the right equilibria. It doesn't exist by eliminating power. It doesn't exist by eliminating uh, the things that we don't like. You know... I'm going to wrap this up, even though I want to talk to you forever. I mean, we, we, we need, and I want to talk not over Zoom. You know? I, I honestly, I, I'm really, I, I, I have never, you know, I, I'm over considering real um, conversation being this way, but it's pretty good. At least we've had gotten to have this conversation. But I want to mention, you know, we talked about GPT-3 early on mm-hmm. in this conversation almost two hours ago. Um, and the bit, you made this issue that the construction of GPT-3's world is only of the past, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Give, me, give, me a, give us a little bit of some predictions of, you know, your mind <laughs> that is able to construct a future 
what, what's give, I don't care if it's two days from now. What's something that we should be looking towards? I think we should be, uh, in the sense that should uh, probably be thinking about what's going to happen. Not so much what, how can we save the world, but what it's going to happen if nobody saves it. And how will we, uh, will we deal with it? And then how can we get a head start on the way in which we are going to deal with what's going to happen? And the best possible future that I can see uh, means that we will reinvent our society from within. So without a violent revolution where we destroy all the infrastructure, a lot of people die. We use the existing society as a substrate to build the next one. And that probably starts with better schools. I think that ultimately society is always uh, flowing out of its schools. So uh, yeah. what do we teach our children? What is the perspective that uh, they should be taking? What does it mean to be an autonomous intellect and to link up with others in a sustainable way? How can we build uh, uh, societies that share resources and allocate them in a sane way and uh, become sustainable? And uh, this seems to be one of the most urgent questions to me. So it's probably something that the entire West needs to build on and build resources for, like uh, institutions, new institutes for thought and for disseminating them to the next generation. And we still have this window open where the internet is not completely closed yet, where we still can coordinate quite freely. And uh, we should use this opportunity to basically build sentient networks, networks of people that know what's going on, what their place in the world is, what the world is like, what the future is going to be like as a result of our actions and act on these plans. So uh, this is what I would wish that we would basically build a network of such institutions in the West. I think that there are uh, several forms of government that are competing and it's not Trump versus Biden. Both Trump and Biden are... Um, rational um, liberals in a way. It's hard to see this, but uh, just because uh, Biden is the member of a cabal that is uh, uh, captured by Wall Street and is uh, unable to uh, let go of the uh, Democrats and let them reinvent themselves after they uh, lost against the clown. And uh, Trump is basically a used car salesman who's bored and uh, only wants to have the business card and puts himself in tremendous personal danger because of his vanity and uh, is not able to play well with the institutions. He's not even interested in politics very much, right? This is a disaster. But uh, both Biden and Trump believe in a world where you don't necessarily need to distort what other people think in the sense that you kill them if they believe the truth, like it happens in a theocracy or uh, in uh, an authoritarian anti-rationalist world. And they are not authoritarians. Both of them believe in rules of getting to power and rules by which you lose power because the alternative is that you mostly lose power by getting killed and gain power by killing somebody else. And uh, th th this is the big advantage that we have a society that at its core is nonviolent. And everything else, all our moral, moral progress, I believe, is the result of our Western society being at its core non-violent. That is, doesn't mean that, uh, for instance, uh, you can lose your job, which you could say is a form of violence, but it's still very, very different. It's You could say it's coercive. We still have coercion. But uh, it's a very novel situation that for having the wrong opinion, you don't get uh, to, uh, to die in a gulag. And uh, this can come back. And uh, th this is something that's, I think, extremely valuable if we could preserve this. So the alternatives to this uh, liberal rationalism is... Um, authoritarian rationalism and uh, authoritarian anti-rationalism, like a theocracy. 
and we don't want those. And the West is unique in the sense that it has established a quite some long period of a world in where everybody is in some sense free to get to join those in power, to join the elites without getting killed in the attempt. Well, I, I, I love that you're looking forward is not answers exactly to questions, but a framework and um, some, some, you know, some questions that we need to be asking that a G, that GPT couldn't currently ask. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it rooted in the past, but ultimately after us complaining a lot about things going on in the world right now, I think ultimately this optimistic view that there can be billions of humans living fairly peacefully um, and can live or at least can live very peacefully. And how do we get rid of the coercion as being something? We have Um, been living fairly peacefully in the last uh, decades, right? We did have uh, still wars and atrocities and they were often very well documented and so on. But compared to any other time in human history, I think that Pinker is right. Uh, It's undeniable that we had a very good run recently. It's just, uh, it's not sustainable. They, uh, right. We are running out of resources. Uh, global warming is going to catch up. Uh, the rate of growth in the Western world is uh, sh- shrinking. The thing that mostly grows is financial products. And in, in our world, this is where we have the main domain of innovation at the moment. And uh, this is not real progress in the sense that it helps us to live better for the most part. Right. That, that's the danger of the Pinker model is that you know it, it, you may have had exponential growth for a while of of um you know peaceful uh nonviolence but that you know that if if you are going to make projections for the future that is kind of an that that is something that a computer could have an ai could have done by looking at past results and not thinking of a framework for the future that is a bit dangerous what, uh, what needs to happen, I think, is that somebody like Pinker looks at the uh, frontiers to growth that, that we all grew up with, right? Where you had the first simulations of the uh, future of our civilization in the 1970s. And we are still very much on track with these quite pessimistic uh, system dynamic simulations that tell us that we are uh, not living in a sustainable world, that we created something that is inherently unstable. And it might be very, very hard to make a technological civilization stable. That uh, yeah. all the other civilizations that were stable that existed sometimes for millennia, uh, limited progress to make societies controllable, and uh, they limited progress. You typically until they were um, destroyed by somebody else who didn't limit progress, that locally innovated and, for instance, uh, developed a new form of warfare and was able to uh, take down the walls of that kingdom. And uh, so now we are in this stage where we have taken down all the boundaries to progress. And there, uh, we still have uh, hindrances, which are the result of our institutions uh, becoming gatekeepers to uh, vested interests. Like we cannot easily deploy new medications right now because the regulatory hurdles are very high to this, for example. And uh, innovation typically happens in those areas where we can outrun the regulators for a while. But uh, normally the situation is that from time to time, uh, our societies have ways to reboot the system, to delete Zenescent organizations and replace them by new generations of these organizations. So this is all stuff that we should be working on, that we basically reinvent our societal contract, not uh, on the basis of going back to authoritarianism, I think, or I hope, 
but uh, basically sitting down, taking stuff of what worked, what didn't work, what can we try. Maybe open up the U.S. to a competition between regions, uh, open up a uh, competition between cities, uh, ending uh, the uh, dominance of zoning laws, um, creating possibilities for trying different things and seeing what works. You've given me, a, a, you know, um, an exciting chance to talk to you again and to take these ideas into conversation, hopefully, as I leave here with others. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, too. It was very enjoyable. Thank you.